Please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. As you're turning there, this uh, Sunday not only marks the first Sunday of a new year, but also today marks really a new season in the life of our church. Uh, this past Sunday, uh, we had uh, what we call kind of the leadership handoff, the passing of the baton, and uh, just really special time for myself and my family last Sunday, and uh, something I'll really treasure for a long, long time, and very appreciative for how Rusty led us through that uh, wonderful service. And uh, uh, he is with us in spirit. Uh, this morning, he sent me a text of encouragement for myself, but also he is praying for us as a church, and so that was great to receive that, so... All right, well, I want to kind of lay out what the next few months uh, may look like, because uh, when we were going through this transition process, I kind of kept thinking over and over again, you know, where do we start as a church? You know, what's our first sermon series? What all uh, may that look like? And I really believe the Lord kept bringing us back and kept bringing me back to the gospel of Matthew. And so I'd pray about this and kind of think it through. And just over and over again, the gospel of Matthew uh, kept coming to mind. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I mean, first of all, this uh, gospel has been around for 2,000 years, just absolutely amazing, but it's still so relevant today. And one of the key parts of the gospel of Matthew is that it has been used to disciple followers of Christ to help people find Jesus and then follow him. Just a, a wonderful resources for you and for myself to find Christ and then to follow him. And you know, that's what we want to be about as a church. That as a church, we want to help you find Jesus and follow Jesus. And then in turn, that you help others find Christ and follow him. And Matthew, the author of this wonderful gospel, He's one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and he writes this gospel, and the gospel means good news. It's this good news announcement about the person and work of Jesus. And so uh, here's kind of the plan for the next six months or so, and, and Lord willing, this is what will happen, and plans can, can change, but this is what we're going to do. From today until Easter, which is March 31st, so it's a little bit early this year, we're going to be exploring some of the key events in the life of Jesus. Now, I know when I say key events in the life of Jesus, every event in his life can be key. But we want to look at some of those high moments, those pivotal moments, if you will. So we're going to be looking at Jesus' baptism, the temptation in the wilderness, his transfiguration. And then that very important last week of Jesus' life, where we see him go to the cross, where he died and rose again. And my hope is that we, as we look at these pivotal events in Jesus' life, that we see just how amazing Christ is. That we see the humanity of Jesus. Sometimes as believers, we can just focus on the deity of Christ, but we miss his humanity. And so I hope you see the compassion of Jesus, the struggles that he had, the grief that he went through, but also that we see his glory revealed. But I also want you to see how much Jesus loves and sacrificed for you. And so as we go on this journey, my hope, my prayer is that you see just how beautiful Jesus is, how special he is to you. And not only that you grow in this head knowledge about Christ, but really in the core of who you are, in your heart. That's what the, when the Bible speaks of our heart, it means the core of who we are, that we know Jesus better. 
and that we experience his grace and love in a new and a fresh way. And so that will lead us to Easter, and then we'll take a, a kind of a couple-week break, and then we're going to come back uh, to Matthew's chapter 4 to 7, uh, what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we'll look at that. So basically, the next six months, again, Lord willing, look at the life of Jesus, take a little break, and then come back to the teachings of Jesus. And I'm really looking forward uh, to this. And so that's what's going to be taking place on Sunday. But you know, as a church, we also want to be more than just a Sunday morning experience church. And so to help with this, um, learning about Christ and growing in our faith, uh, we're doing this reading plan. Now, I know many of you went through uh, what we did a couple years ago, the Every Word All Year, where we read through the entire Bible in one year. And it was a great experience for our church. Many people still talk about it today. But it was also a lot. I mean, to get through the entire Bible in a year, it's about five chapters a day. It's just nonstop. But we're going to take a slower approach as we go through the Gospel of Matthew and just read one chapter a day. So today is the seventh, and so you would read chapter seven. Tomorrow's the eighth, so chapter eight, and, and so on. And so we're going to do that in January. Then we're going to do that in February and then come back one more time in March. And, and the, the hope here is that you really, as you take this slow approach, that you can really meditate, really chew on these chapters, uh, get more familiar with them as we come back to them multiple times. And so I hope you do that reading plan. But I also would encourage you to, to get in some community. And you may not read it together, but maybe you could reach out to a few friends and say, hey, let's read it and then let's just text each other. You know, what was important in this chapter? What stood out to you? And so again, I would encourage you to take more of a community approach as we go through this great gospel. And so again, I'm excited about this. I, I hope you are too. But if you've already turned to Matthew chapter 1, for some of you, your excitement may have dropped a little bit. You might be a little confused asking yourself the question, are we really going to begin with a genealogy? We're we really going to do that. Now, I grant you typically when we come to a list of names in the Bible, we can just scan over it very quickly. But I also know that many of us, when it comes to our family history, this is something we really like to dig into. You know, we want to find out who's in our family line. Is there anybody famous from our family? In fact, you may be uh, surprised to know that in the U.S., the second most popular hobby is that of genealogy work, of tracing uh, a family history. Now, if you're interested, any guesses to what number one is? Any guesses? It's gardening, all right? <laughs> Our young people right now are shaking their head like, this is ridiculous. Hobbies one and two, genealogy work and gardening. But hey, if you're looking in 2024 for some new hobbies, there's the top two. And so when we come again to a list of names like this in Matthew chapter one, that temptation is there to just kind of skim over it, move very quickly. But what we're going to do this morning is, is take some time and really dig into this genealogy of Jesus. And I think you may be surprised by what we find. You may be surprised about some of the, the names that Matthew lists here. And so if you would, read with me Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we'll go to chapter 17. Now, I was asked before the last service, are you really going to read the entire list? And I said, I didn't practice all week for nothing, all right? So, so here we go. And if you want to know how to really pronounce the names the proper way, you can download the Dwell Bible app and you know, it'll help you out maybe a little more than what I'll do here. But here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Abinadad, and Abinadad the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jerem, Jerem the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud. Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah or the Christ. Thus, thus there were 14 generations and all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. All right. Now, as we look at this genealogy, there are two uh, encouragements, okay? Two encouragements that I want to draw to your attention. And the first encouragement is this, that with this genealogy of Jesus, it reveals that our God is a promise-keeping God, that our God keeps his promises. And you may need to hear this this morning. As we begin this new year, that right now you may be facing some really difficult things in your life. Or it may be that right now things are fairly calm. But in three months or six months or later this year, there are going to be some real hardships coming your way. You anticipate that. You're worried about that. You're anxious about that. And so for you, all of us, we need to hear this this morning, that our God keeps his promises. Now look with me again at verse 1 where it reads this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want to ask you, why does Matthew start verse 1 in this way? I mean, why does he give this kind of little introduction? We might anticipate or expect him to start with Abraham, who's the father of the people of Israel, and Abraham, and then Isaac, and, and Jacob, and so on. Why does he give this little introduction? I mean, he begins with David, King David. David lived a thousand years after Abraham, so why start with him? Why does Matthew do this? It's because he is drawing the reader's attention. He is drawing your attention to the fact that God keeps his promises. What Matthew is doing is recalling for us the covenants that God made with Abraham and David. 
Now, you may be asking, what exactly is a covenant? I mean, this isn't a word that we kind of pass around all that much, maybe not that familiar. But to understand the Bible, and I would say to really understand who God is and how he works and how he operates, you have to understand this concept of covenant. And a covenant as found in the Bible is this. It's a binding relational agreement. But when it comes to the covenant that God makes with his people, because he's a personal God, because he's a God that loves us, we need to push it a little bit further because that's very formal, you know, this binding relational agreement. But that doesn't really capture the heart of who God is. Because when God makes a covenant, what he is doing is making a loving promise that he will not break. A loving promise to you that he will not break. And so God comes to Abraham, the father, the patriarch of this people of Israel, the Jewish people. And he comes to him, what we find in Genesis chapter 12 and again in chapter 17. And God tells Abraham that I'm going to bless you and that through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed and that through you, kings will come. And as the story unfolds, just as God promised to Abraham, who at the time that, that God showed up to him, very old man, his wife was also old. They were past their childbearing time, but yet he gives them this promise. And after many, many years, they finally have this child, so unexpected, and they name him Isaac, this son of promise. And this family begins to grow, and eventually they become this great nation, just as God had said it would happen. The people or the nation of Israel. And as this nation gets established, they eventually want a king. And the second king of the nation of Israel is King David. And David, God comes to him and he's ruling at this time. And he says that through your line, David, through your bloodline would come the Messiah. Now this Messiah, it was first spoken of all the way back at Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve living in paradise, but yet they, they sin. That's what's called the fall, the fall of humanity. But yet even in that moment, where God curses our work and, and things will be difficult, he still gives a promise that this one would come. And then this promise is told to Moses that this great prophet would show up one day. And now here's God speaking with David. And he says, through your line, David, the Messiah, the Christ, it means the anointed. We could say the king will come. And this Christ will set up a kingdom that will never end. It will be an everlasting kingdom. Now, all that sounds simple enough until you really dig into the history of the people of Israel. It's a very sad and disappointing history. I mean, God does amazing things for them. He gives them the promised land. He blesses them over and over again, but yet they continue to reject him. They grumble against him. They're disobedient. They go after false gods. And over and over again, the Lord would send prophet after prophet after prophet, pleading with his people, return to the Lord. There is still time to re receive his grace, but they won't. They continue to reject him. They continue to go their own way. And it gets so bad that they're sent into exile. The kingdom had split at one point, the northern kingdom exiled to Assyria. And then the southern kingdom holds on for a little bit longer. And then Babylon comes, destroys them. They have to go away. 
but yet the Lord is faithful. He keeps a remnant of his people, the small group of people, and they return to the land, and he continues to work out his promises. He doesn't give up on them. And what's so amazing is from the time of Abraham to David is a thousand years. And then from David to Jesus, Jesus, this one that fulfills God's promise, another thousand years. 2,000 years were God's people so disobedient, not wanting him, rejecting him, but yet he stays faithful. Absolutely amazing. But that applies also to you and me. This isn't just Israel's history. This is our history. And so as we begin this new year, I want to ask you this. What are you struggling with right now? As you look into kind of the future as best you can for this year, what things are coming your way? What difficulties do you expect this year? Well, let me press on that just a little bit more with these difficulties that you may be experiencing right now or that may be coming your way. Is it causing you to question God's love for you? Is it causing you to doubt his love and commitment to you? And it's in those moments when our circumstances seem so dire and so hard that we have to have this practice, really this spiritual discipline to remind ourselves over and over and over again that God keeps his promises. That in the midst of the confusion, that when things don't seem to make sense, that we anchor ourselves in the promises of God. That we look to the covenant that God made with Abraham, and then with David, and we take confidence in that. But also for you and I, what we find in the New Testament is that you and I don't live under this old covenant. We live under the new covenant of Christ. This is the covenant that you and I are under right now. And what that means is that our sins are forgiven. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have turned from your sin, they are forgiven for all eternity never to be remembered again. As far as it's the east is from the west, they're gone. But you and I, we don't do that, do we? We don't trust God in that. We remember our sin. We remember our failure. It so easily comes back up. But yet God doesn't do that to us. So why do we do it to ourselves? Remember, you are under the new covenant of Christ. He has died for those sins. He took them upon himself. They are gone. But even greater than that, you are part of God's family. You are his child. And what's so amazing about this is that not our sin, not our doubt, not our inconsistent life, not our fluctuating commitment to Christ, not our, or not our circumstances, nothing, it says in Romans, that wonderful book of Romans, nothing separates us from the love and promises of God. And so with this genealogy of Jesus and these opening verses, it reveals that God keeps his promises to his people. And if you've trusted in Christ, that means you put your reliance, not on what you've done or haven't done, but you rely, you trust in what Christ has done for you and who he is. You are now part of his covenant, this new covenant. You can now trust in his promises and take confidence that he will remain faithful for you today and for all 
eternity. That he makes a binding, loving commitment to you. That's the first encouragement. The second encouragement is this. In this genealogy of Jesus, it reveals God's grace and mercy to us. And as we'll see, God's grace and mercy, really, it's an overflowing grace and mercy. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with some of these uh, kind of websites, these companies that do different uh, uh, kind of family tracing, uh, you know, DNA tests and all this stuff. Uh, but if, if you don't know, maybe you haven't looked into it, some of these companies, they actually put a warning that if you do this, you may be surprised at the outcome, all right? So you may be surprised that some famous person was in your history. You also may be surprised that, hey, I got a new cousin I wasn't expecting, all right? I've seen some of that with some people I know that took these tests. Very surprising, the results that they got. And when it comes to this genealogy of Jesus, it is very surprising what we find. Because in this list of names that Matthew includes, the, the original audience would have been very shocked, been very surprised of, of who he included. And what was really so shocking was the women that were listed. Now, hang, hang with me here, right? Stay with me. I know for us, that doesn't seem all that shocking. But again, this original audience would have been very surprised to see women listed because especially at the time that Matthew wrote, you just didn't include women. You know, if you go to the Old Testament, it's like this father begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, and it's just one father after another listed. And so that was one surprising thing. The second is that four of the five women that are listed were considered Gentiles, meaning they're, they're not Jewish, so they're not from the people of Israel. But taking it one more step further, these women, they're not only women listed, not only Gentiles, but when you look at their background, and their circumstances, very scandalous. And we're not going to go into every detail, but I want to go through some of the, these ladies and just give some of their background. So we see Tamar. Her husband died. He's a very wicked man. She remarries his brother, very wicked as well. Actually, they were so wicked, the Lord killed them. That's how wicked they were. And her father-in-law, Judah, you've heard the tribe of Judah. Okay, this is her father-in-law. He promised he would take care of her, but he does not. And so she kind of takes things into her own control as best she can at that time. A woman at that time would have had no real ability to do that. But she dresses up like a prostitute. She keeps her face hidden. They have this sexual relationship. And through that, she produces a child. She gets pregnant. We move to Rahab. Rahab is known as this woman of extraordinary faith, but Prior to coming to faith in God, she was a prostitute. Ruth, before she committed her life to the Lord, was an idol worshiper from the nation of Moab. Now, if you're not familiar with the history of the people of Moab, very, very sordid affair. And so Abraham has a nephew. His nephew is Lot. You may have heard of him. He has this incestuous relationship with his daughter, actually both daughters, but one of them, she becomes pregnant, and she names the child Moab. And so the Moabites come from this awful history. But it doesn't just stop there with them. They have this kind of awful history, how they begin as a people. But they were also very wicked against the people of Israel. They did not help them out when they needed help. And so in the Old Testament, it actually says that Moabites were excluded from the worship community of Israel. 
So Ruth, that little book of Ruth, that's so wonderful. She was literally from a cursed nation. And then Bathsheba, her name's not even given in this genealogy. It's just listed as the wife of Uriah. Now, she was most likely Jewish, but because she was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite, she was considered a Gentile. And so she has this adulterous relationship with King David. And then to cover it up, David has her husband killed. He was actually a very close friend of David. But because Bathsheba becomes pregnant, they're in this battle. All the other Jewish guys fall back, all the other soldiers. They leave him alone, and he's killed, trying to cover up what they did. That's exactly what happens. And so these Gentile women with these very checkered pasts are included in a shocking manner in the genealogy of Jesus. But it's not like the men listed here any better. We see Abraham, so often this model of faith, and in many ways he is, but he was nowhere near perfect. So God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and I might have my chapters off a little bit here, but he comes to him in chapter 12, and literally the next chapter after he's given this great promise that he and Sarah will have a child, they go on this journey. And because Abraham gets scared, he doesn't trust in God's promises. He tells Sarah, hey, tell them you're my sister. And so that's what happens. And so the king of that nation takes her. He's going to make her his own. They're going to have this sexual relationship. But the Lord has to intervene it caused this curse to fall on the people. God had to, had to make sure that nothing happened to Sarah so that Isaac could still come. We go a few years later in the life of Abraham. He's still waiting for his son Isaac. But he and Sarah, they, they take things into their own hand. And, and Sarah says, hey, have my uh, servant have sex with her, have a sexual relationship with her. And through that, this promise will come. They don't trust God's promise. And that's exactly what takes place. And Ishmael is born and all sorts of family issues begin to pop up. When Isaac is finally born, this child of promise, when he becomes an adult, he has some children and he does one of the worst things you can do as a parent. He shows favoritism. He has twins, Jacob and Esau, but he prefers Esau. He loves him more. And this causes all sorts of family drama. As we keep going, Jacob, he's a deceiver. He tricks his brother Esau. He tricks his father Isaac into receiving the family blessing. And because of this, he has to take off for a foreign land. He eventually marries four women. And it just gets worse, these family issues. And similar to his father he has one wife that he prefers all, over all the others. He shows favoritism to her and her children only. And as you can imagine, it does not make for a happy family. And then David, as mentioned earlier, commits adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband killed. But that's not all. When it comes to David, one of the things that we see over and over again when we, when we read about his, his life is that he was not a very good father. When his children did things that he really needed to address, he always went the other way. He didn't address those hard issues. And then Solomon said to be the wisest man ever, but he doesn't always act like it. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines, which is kind of the second tier wife. 
And that's bad enough, but what that causes him to do is follow after all these false gods. These were wives from all these different nations. He was making all these alliances with them, and then he began to follow their gods. And so as we look at this family, yes, there is faithfulness, and there is commitment to the Lord, but there is so much sin. There's sexual sin. There's deception. There's messed up family dynamics. There's jealousy. There's murder. This is not the family that you would think Jesus would come from. But the question is, is there a better family that Jesus would come from? I mean, think about your own family. I mean, most of us can only go back a few generations. I, I mean, with me, I, I kind of know who my great-grandparents are a little bit. But just starting from there until now, I can give you a lot of, a lot of stories about my family and the sin that's in my family. Let me stretch that even farther. And so that's my family. And I know yours is very similar. And so this line that Jesus comes through, this family had all sorts of sin and issues. All of our families have sin and so many issues. But we can't stop there, can we? This list of names is not just to show us just Jesus' family. It's to apply it to our own lives. I don't want you to think of just the issues in your own family. I want you to think about yourself. We have to do that hard work of reflecting on our own lives, of the sin in our life, the jealousy, the strife, where we've hurt others, where we've rejected God. And as we do that hard work of reflecting on our own lives, I want to ask you this. Is there something in your story is there some sin? Is there some episode in your life that you, think, that you think disqualifies you from receiving and experiencing God's grace and mercy in your own life? Is there something right now that is keeping you from experiencing God's love for you? And so as we reflect on where we've been and what we've done, we don't stop there. We go to the grace and mercy of Christ. We go to the grace and mercy of our Lord. And that is so clearly manifest in the person of Jesus. Because we go through this long list of names. We see their, their history that is so sinful. But then we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, and we find Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. And what is so amazing, we read this in Philippians chapter 2, the New Testament letter of Philippians. It says this of Jesus, that he, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself by leaving heaven and coming to this broken and fallen world. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man and coming through this broken and sinful line of people. But most of all, Christ humbled himself by going to the cross. And at the cross, he took all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all those things that we hold on to, and he bore that. He placed it on himself, and he died. But then the Lord, showing that he accepted that beautiful sacrifice, 
raised him from the dead. This one Jesus who humbled himself, who went to the cross, did it for you. And so if you're holding on to something today, let it go. And if you have never placed your faith in Christ, quit relying on yourself. Rely on Jesus. He's the only one that is perfect. The only one that is sinless. Put your trust in him. And so as we begin this new year, as we begin this new season in the life of our church, hold on to these two encouragements. That God keeps his promises. And that our God is a God full of grace and mercy. Would you please bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. I want to ask you, as we begin this new year, where are you at with Jesus? If you've never placed your faith in Christ, what is keeping you from doing that today? Is there some past guilt or shame? Is there something that you think disqualifies you from his grace? There is nothing that keeps you from his love and his grace for you. Put your trust in him. Turn to him today. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, which is most of us I know in this room, I would remind you of his grace. That there may be some past sins that that keep rising up in your mind. Remind yourself that you have been forgiven. Fall on his grace and his mercy. And for others, as we begin this new year, do you need to remind yourself of the promises of God? Are you in the midst of a trial? Do you know some hard things are coming your way? Anchor yourself, hold fast to God's loving promises and care for you.